for the sun every single day. He gave me a home and gave me my name. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and the content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. I was born to break every single rule With a reckless heart, sometimes a fool I was held to raise, but he kept his cool Showed me love will always follow through I can't see it all in his way. Ready? Hello, everybody. It's Todd Fredericks again coming to you uh, from actually my my hangar. I actually have a hangar, and I'm surprised we haven't heard any airplanes yet. But uh, the new reality of COVID-19 and working remotely means that I can come to the peace and quiet of my hangar out in the airport where I can do an interview uh, with amazing technology, and it's, it's, it's peaceful. And I'm looking for that chill zen moment of airplanes and, and the wind and the breeze uh, and uh, movement of air, which is which is kind of what we're talking about today with Dr. John Bashara, a DO, who is a pulmonologist who did an extraordinary... I had no idea it took so long to become a pediatric pulmonologist, but it took a long time. And John's with us today. John, can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. And in our first episode, we talked a lot about what it's like to become a pulmonologist. Why do people do that and, and what's involved in it? And so that's more for the medical students and the pre-meds thinking maybe that's something I could do. But today, we're going to talk about the implications of COVID-19 on pulmonologists. And so we'll just jump into it, John. How has COVID-19 changed your practice? Because we're, we're recording this on the 8th of June. And do you recall when you first became aware of COVID-19? That'd be a good place to start. How long ago? Actually, I remember because one patient back in uh, February had canceled appointment because she was concerned she would get uh, COVID nineteen back then. And most of us, we were st- we started laughing. We're like, "Well, you know, if you traveled to China or you were exposed with anyone that came from China, I was like, yeah, you know, we haven't seen this at a pandemic level yet." Or we weren't even believing that it was going to become a pandemic. So, yeah. So when did you when did you start really thinking? You said that's in February, but when did you start thinking? Holy cow, this is a real deal in the United States. When uh, the physicians were talking about it in Washington State, that it was uh, spreading like hotcake, and we're like, okay, this is big. This is news. Was, was this through your professional journals or was it through uh, chat rooms, websites? What were you seeing? What was your source of information at that time? We actually have a pediatric lung forum and uh, we were discussing this over our, uh, you know, chat room or quote unquote email. And I have still a lot of friends and my wife's friends who are respiratory therapists up in New York, Long Island area. And they were saying they were getting hit hard. But this is pediatrics, John. I mean, isn't COVID-19 an old person's disease? Not quite, because we now we're getting a lot of data and a lot of research that we thought it was just an elderly or an adult disease. But now kids are getting hit hard. Surprisingly, there's now in the literature about this multi-inflammatory uh, systemic circulation or multi-inflammatory MISC, excuse me about how these patients are 
these children are just having like a cytokine storm. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to get into that in a minute. I, I want, though, to set the, set the foundation for this, John, because you and I have been working on this now in some capacity for a couple of months in my role in the military. You're, I should also mention that you're a serving Air Force officer. Um, and so we've been involved in looking at this and being asked questions about this on our various levels of expertise and in, in our lanes. I was looking at data about SARS and MERS. Mm-hmm. And I think initially I'm always a little concerned because I'm a message guy. And so people were hearing COVID-19 and I was always a little concerned about that because COVID-19 is SARS-CoV-2. Uh, now okay. that emerged over a couple of, a couple of weeks, the, the, the designation. But when we talk about COVID-19, we're really talking about coronavirus disease of 2019. Correct. Caused by SARS-CoV-2. That's a ty- it's a type of coronavirus. So how is how is how is COVID nineteen SARS CoV two how is that different than SARS MERS or any of the other coronaviruses that cause routine colds that everybody's been around? Well, not SARS and MERS, but uh, in the United States. But so why is this thing so different? So let's just even talk about what each SARS was, MERS was, and COVID nineteen is currently. So. The coronavirus that causes SARS or, you know, severe acute respiratory syndrome, according to the WHO, was first occurred in China in the Guangdong uh, province. This was back in November 2002. The natural reservoir for this, for the SARS coronavirus, was Horseshoe Bat. And then the uh, research was coming out saying, well, we actually see it in civic cats and animals and also wet markets, similar to COVID-19. Now, many people, the researchers are coming out that are debating or saying that the wet market may not be, there's so much that, you know, Taraji you're probably more uh, up to date with that discussion, but let me, we'll just carry in a systematic way so we don't get lost because there's so much information that the probably the medical student, the residents, or even the layman will just get confused over. Mm-hmm. So, well, just so you, you know, know, John, when we finish this up, I'm going to put in the show notes references to these things. Uh, and I want this to be a reference for people that can turn to it and maybe pull out. These I have a few, I'm sure you do too. I have some really good papers that talk about SARS, MERS, and those yeah. things. So for people who are interested, I'll try to put as many links as I can in the show notes. So if you hear us talking about something that doesn't make any sense, go to the show notes. It should be in chronological order, and you can kind of pull it up and maybe interactively look at Wikipedia or look at one of the other peer-reviewed references that we put up that should help you with this. Go, go ahead, John. So the WHO, the World Health Organization, first notified SARS or coronavirus back then, this was February 10, 2003. The next day, you know, the Chinese health ministry made an official report. What was interesting is they only, a month later, in March, where the WHO made a global alert, warning of atypical pneumonia. That's when they had all these emergency travel issues. I remember as if it was yesterday, I know they talked about shutting down the traveled to Canada. I remember specifically, uh, it was in the summer 
or excuse me, late spring, where uh, the New York Yankees, which I'm a huge fan of, Jeter, he was sliding to third base and hurt his shoulder. And everyone was concerned because he was try- he had done it in Toronto and he was supposed to go to a hospital in Canada and everyone was afraid that he may get uh, SARS. So I just, yeah, we're like almost a complete loop around. Now we're talking about COVID-19, which is much more huge than SARS was. I think the latest data says there's about 8,400 uh, people that were, there were total number of cases of SARS. Number of cases in the United States is about in the 70s. And total number of deaths were about in the 800. For SARS, the the fatality rate was close to 10%, which is completely different from what we're getting currently in uh, COVID-19. Yeah, the latest number I looked at today, John, was 110,000 dead in about three months. Correct. And the percentage they're saying for COVID-19 is about 1.3 to uh, 3.5% fatality rate which is under what SARS had. But COVID-19 is spreading like wildfire, and SARS was not, is, uh, was, did not spread. So why, why is that, though, John? Because, you know, social media is ripe with people who speculate to the point of really bad failure uh, in terms of communicating information. Why do you suppose it is that SARS, uh, with a much higher instance of death for infected people, why... why why did it not spread like wildfire in the United States? I think why and specifically was that the underlying, uh, probably because of the significantly higher case fatality, people were getting sick faster and sicker and they were dying with SARS compared with COVID-19 that it took a while to manifest. I think the, you know, quote me if I'm not wrong, the mean incubation period for COVID-19 is five to up to 14 days. That's about right. So, and according to the data from the WHO for SARS, was the mean incubation period for SARS was five days. And for the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, the incubation period was again, Similar to that was about five days as well. So, so. If, if I might put this into family doctor language, what that means is basically you get sick so quickly, you don't have enough time to wander around society spreading virus before you're already in a hospital and in desperately ill condition. Correct. With SARS and MERS. And with SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, you are asymptomatic and you are spreading virus and you don't feel particularly badly but you're actually delivering a virus much more widely because you don't feel badly and you haven't been sent, you haven't taken yourself to the doctor or gone to the hospital yet. Is that correct, John? I agree with you. That's awesome. I'm glad someone agrees with me. I'm going to go home and have dinner and I'm going to have, I get to meet my best friend who sometimes doesn't agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is awesome. I'm just going to put a plug in for her right now. You have a wife too. She's a respiratory therapist, right? Is a respiratory therapist, yeah. Has she been working in the same environment as you, or she's taking care of your babies? She is, so I kind of debated with her not to go back to work because 
you know, a, you know, a little plug or a little background. So we just had our first child in December, and he was born prematurely at 30 weeks, so two and a half months early. So I pretty much told her, I was like, look, if I get COVID-19, I don't want to spread it to anyone else. If you get COVID-19, you know, the baby needs you. You know, you supply nourishment for him. Me, you know, I'm just a pretty face. You know, he just smiles to me. <laughs> you know, she nurses them all the time. So the hardest job is a stay-at-home mom. It, it's, it is very tough. Got to make a lot of decisions and uh, take care of a little human that needs you 100%. Yeah, and Absolutely. I will say this, John. You are a pretty man. I'm just going to say it. You're a good-looking man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... I, I'm trying to keep this somewhat tongue-in-cheek because if we don't keep this somewhat lighthearted, it can be extremely depressing. Uh, and I've looked at the world, and I see two worlds. I see a world where people don't encounter the critically ill and dying, and they go about wondering why the country is asking them to do so many things like wear masks and stuff. And then the world of that we live in, which is people who are super sick, and they are really not good. Uh, entire nursing homes taken out by one person who walks in unknowingly shedding a virus. It's it's really a different set of circumstances. So if you hear humor in this, it's because if we didn't have humor to balance out some of the really frightening things we see, um, it would be unbearable in some cases to look at this. So, Absolutely. John, the differences in presentation, I mean, the presentation of SARS, MERS, COVID-19, are they just in time? There's the same type of disease, it just some go much more quickly, or are there distinct differences between SARS, MERS, and COVID-19 in terms of how they present? If you look at MERS, or Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, there was a total number of deaths was 866 out of 2,500. 20, uh, 20, so the fatality rate was one third, which is incredibly high. However, it was only limited to Middle Eastern nations, Saudi Arabia specifically. So, you know, you wonder like if COVID-19 had this high fertility rate, you know, we really, you know, you know it would have knocked out a higher population. Right now, 110,000, in America or 300,000 around the world, imagine 33% or 34% similar to MERS, we would talk about many more patients dying, which is unfathomable. And I like the fact that you put that into context, John, because there's been a lot of criticism of public health people who... Uh, now folks are saying, well, you overcalled this thing. You know, the, they don't comprehend 110,000, right? Uh, again, well, we lose 40 or 50,000 a year from flu. Well, this is 110,000 above the flu. And it's also the case that early on, the public health people are looking at SARS and MERS, both coronaviruses, and thinking, if this is anything like them, given the fact that nobody has any immunity to this thing, we could be looking at deaths in the millions just in the United States alone. Correct? Cool. You know, uh, you know, I probably am not quoting Winston Churchill correctly. I'm going to Google it right now. But Winston Churchill had a famous quote in regarding to history. And I think he had said uh, that if we do not pay attention to history, history is bound to repeat, himself, repeat itself. And when I was, uh, I was looking at some, you know, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I think 
one example is we look back on how the black plague or the black plague or the bubonic plague was treated, and the physicians back then they kind of treated patients or managed patients similarly as quarantine and social distancing. So they did this back in the 1300s with sailors and say, look, we don't know what's killing everyone, but let's quarantine, let's social distancing. And we're doing the same thing in 2020 with social distancing and quarantine. Well, it's effective. That's correct. Uh, it's not pleasant, but it's effective, right? Correct. And that's what, you know, we have to focus on that. Look, it's not pretty, especially in the summertime where people want to go out, people want to go on vacations, but it is effective. You know, we're talking about flattening the curve. We're talking about, look, we're preventing, we're trying to take care of everyone. So here's the thing. This is going to get a little kludgy getting into this next portion of this discussion, John. I want you, and it's it, and and for people listening, you'll understand why I'm doing this in just a second. John, the cardiovascular system is intimately linked to the pulmonary system. So the heart and, and circula- circulation and blood vessels are very closely related to the lungs and the mechanics of the lungs and the diaphragm. So how do you and cardiologists, pulmonologists and cardiologists, divide up their work? And what I'm saying is you have turf that sort of overlaps in some ways. And as we get into the treatment and evolution of treatment for COVID-19, because we've talked about it being initially it's a lung disease, and now we know that it has coagulopathic properties, it has vascular properties. How do you guys as professionals divvy up your responsibilities in the management of a patient who's acutely ill with COVID-19? So. It's funny. So let's uh, COVID aside. Uh, I have a great pediatric cardiologist here, great cardiologist here in Charleston. We kind of joke around with each other, both the pulmonologist and the cardiologist, in saying that some of the cardiologists will say, "Oh, it's never the heart," and we it's always a tongue in cheek. It's always you know a little bit of humor between us, but. Well, kidding aside, we know patients with chronic, you know, COPD, patients with chronic lung disease or prematurity, patients with pulmonary hypertension, we have to work closely together because we're now knowing from COVID-19 that usually patients with chronic diseases or comorbid diseases, they tend to get hit hardest. Mm-hmm. And they tend to really have complications. That does not mean patients who are not, patients without uh, comorbidities don't get affected. I think I was looking up, uh, I was uh, doing a Google search one day or a Yahoo search, and I saw a, a nurse who was very, you know, you know, worked out very, uh, and took good care of himself. He had gotten coronavirus, COVID-19, he was intubated, traked, and placed on a G-tube and lost 50 pounds. Yeah. And, you know, if uh, some of the medical students or the residents or anyone else want to look it up, I think his Instagram uh, was the bearded nurse. And if you look him up, he was, you know, built. And now with COVID-19, he is skinny, malnutritioned, 
you know, failure to thrive almost with just significant weight loss. And you're just like, wow, this is a patient that was healthy and got affected. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a whole body disease. And we didn't know that three months ago, but we know it now. And th- that maybe we'll get into it later that recovering from a COVID-19 infection does not mean that you're recovered. You may have a lifetime of lung scarring, of, of cardiomyopathy that is uh, damage to your heart muscle that makes it pump less efficiently. Uh, you mm-hmm. may have a lifetime of that ahead of you. If you're a young person, that could be devastating to you for another 20 or 30 years, 40 years of life. So I guess that's, that leads into this. John, how does COVID-19 kill its victims? What do we know about uh, and that? Then, so, and there's actually very good uh, research or very good data coming from the NIH. They're saying, that, you know, they're talking about severe cases associated with ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. Patients presenting with septic shock, they may uh, represent virus-induced, you know, distributive shock, cardiac dysfunction. Patients also having this elevation in like almost a cytokine storm, this multi-inflammatory syndrome. Patients with comorbidities such as pulmonary diseases. Patients may also experience the cardiac, the hepatic, the renal, the CNS system failure. So it does not attack one organ. It can attack every organ system which is kind of, you know, shocking, especially, you know, we, uh, most of us joke around, oh, you know, I just take care of the lungs. I just take care of the kidneys. Well, not really if COVID-19 attacks everything. You know, patients are just having this high levels of array of these inflammatory cytokines. They present with hemodynamical respiratory failure. Patients coming with myocarditis, pericardial dysfunction, patients with acute cardiac injury or even dysrhythmias. I have seen patients with also pulmonary uh, ARDS, patients with just thrombotic diseases because of inflammation, Uh, patients with having pulmonary embolism or thromboembolic diseases being in the ICU. So patients are affected, just not lungs. They get affected. The whole body can get affected. So we kind of sit back and we're like, look, we got to really tell people, tell the citizens, look, you got to protect yourself. Please, please try to reduce the spread. John, why don't you, it might be helpful for people who are listening, what is a cytokine? So a cytokine, so imagine we have all these uh, you know, neurochemical or biochemical uh, particles. And let's say we scratch ourselves. What happens when we scratch ourselves, we get pain. But the pain also induces certain chemicals to come up to and target that area we uh, cut ourselves. So you may see, all right, we cut ourselves, we start bleeding, so the body tries to protect itself, tries to increase inflammation. 
So cytokines can be inflammatory, so inflammation-wise, or can be anti-inflammatory. So a cytokine in itself is a biochemical particle that can help the body or it can hurt the body. In COVID-19, it hurts the body. Imagine you have this, again, another name for it is the cytokine storm. Imagine when you have a thunderstorm. Imagine the cytokines are just thunder and lightning. You have this thunderstorm in your body. And it's not just a few thunder and lightning. It is a growth elevation in all thunder and lightning that's going on. As I can try to keep it very simple. So for the listeners to try to understand more. Um, let me know if I lost you. I, you know, I'll try to explain it. No, I was, I was going to say, people need to know that cytokines, the, the, the root cyto refers to cells. And so cytokines are, as, as Dr. Bashar pointed out, they're little particles, little messengers, chemicals, proteins that live inside your cells. Most people think of the cell, unfortunately, like they saw in a coloring book when they were a little kid of being a nucleus and maybe a couple mitochondria and a couple ribosomes. A human cell, a single human cell, literally has thousands and tens of thousands of those things packed into it, into a matrix, a, a, a fluid bath inside the cell. And they're just busy running around all over the place. And when damage to the cell occurs, those cells leak. And all that stuff comes flooding out, not in a controlled fashion, because sometimes cytokines are released in a controlled fashion that help your body's physiology to respond to various things. And the cell has control over them. When a virus replicates with inside of a cell, frequently what it does is destroys the cell. And the cell ruptures. And instead of an uncontrolled release of these particles, there's just a complete wash of them. And imagine that happening on the scale of hundreds and thousands and millions of cells being affected at one time. And that's why we end up with all of these inflammatory, anti-inflammatory particles floating around in an uncontrolled fashion, a so-called cytokine storm, and they are now indiscriminately going through the body, creating inflammation in the kidneys, in the heart, in the brain, in the eyes, you name it. Anywhere the circulation goes, those cytokines can go. And I think that might help people understand maybe a little better about why this becomes a whole body disease and not just, oh, the lungs are messed up. Does that make sense, John? Correct. Yeah. So, so because of this, we started out in this, in this procedure of, of treating COVID-19 with, we need a lot of ventilators. We need hundreds of thousands of ventilators. We're, we're tapping the national strategic stockpile of ventilators. But how has that changed? We're not talking ventilators as much now, are we? No. Well, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. You betcha. You know, we're always saying that, you know, oh, we got to try to be ahead of the curve. Now we're saying, well, not really uh, ventilators, but don't get me wrong. Some parts of the country were really effective with ventilators. But as this, as we've been seeing now, it's not just the lungs effective. You know, you have, you know, we're now worried about, uh, the dialysis machine. We're now worried about uh, the heart. We're now worried about prescription medications being affected. So 
so we're now uh, worried about, you know, how do we take care of patients who come into the hospital and now have COVID-19? Do we have to worry about the heart? Do we just worry about the lungs? Do we worry about anything else? And that's what we've been realizing now with further research. We're like, well, we actually have to take the whole body. Some people are just consulting all the services and say, all right, I have a COVID-19. Let me see how it's going. All right, your renal function is increasing. Let me get nephrology on board. All right, troponins or the cardiac enzymes are increasing. Let me get cardiology involved. So, so John, my own personal crusade is I want to get point-of-care ultrasound education in my own institution, I basically want every medical student graduating from OU to be very comfortable with point-of-care ultrasound. Not because I want to supplant my cardiology buddies who do much more nuanced and refined ultrasound, but because I want every medical student coming out of school to be able to look at an ejection fraction or be able to see that maybe that left ventricular wall looks a little thicker than I think it should be. Or, or wow, that right ventricle looks like it's getting bigger. Is something going on in the lungs? Um, and and so one of the things I see out of this is I think we're behind the curve. Uh, there are some institutions in the country that are very advanced when it comes to point-of-care ultrasound instruction um, and giving us those tools because, frankly, um, there aren't enough cardiologists around if this disease continues its course to be able to provide the, the diagnostic ultrasound services necessary, I think, to meet the needs of the really sick patients but also allow us over time, especially patients who's recovered from COVID-19, to just be able to do a quick look in the office and say, yeah, I think your EF is doing pretty good. I, I don't see anything that looks really scary to me. Maybe we can avoid deluging the cardiologist with another ultrasound study, a formal ultrasound study. Does that make sense to you? I agree. You know, I think the more you know, the better. I think being in the military, we see a lot of this. I think the more training we get, especially in the military-wise, the better we're off uh, from it. And I'm just grateful having this training, having this service, you know, the more education we get, the better. You know, I tell the medical students, learn as much as you can. Look, learn about your point of care ultrasound. Learn how to read a chest x-ray. Learn how to put in a central line. Learn how to put in an IV with ultrasound or with uh, uh, a central line with ultrasound. The more you know, the better. Because later on in life, you never know. Maybe you want to just start doing office and you're like, well, you know, I've been rusty. Well, you have to know. It's just a good standard of care of knowing how to do it. Well, I looked at, there's, I'll post it in the show notes for this episode, but there's a, an Italian physician who actually did a wonderful job of documenting his own resolution of his pulmonary effusions using handheld ultrasound in his home while he was quarantined after getting COVID-19. And it was amazing how on a day-to-day -day basis, he could look at his symptoms, do a quick ultrasound on himself, and actually look at the size of his pulmonary effusions and be able to know this is not getting better, this is stable, this is improving. And it was fascinating to me that he could get an ultrasound anytime he wanted. I didn't have to run to a hospital, but he could actually get meaningful data about the progression of his of recovery as any family doctor well-trained to look at that kind of thing could do for their patients without sending them back into a hospital. Oftentimes, in a situation, for instance, we couldn't get elective procedures for over two months. So, Correct. 
So this is really a, a thinking problem we need to address. And, and today, that technology, for 2000 bucks, I can have a handheld ultrasound with very mm -hmm. high-resolution photography or very high-resolution video imagery that I can then even take a screenshot of, send it to my cardiology buddy and say, do I need to send them in for a, a, a true diagnostic car, uh, echocardiogram? Or to the pulmonologist say, should I send them in for a true diagnostic pulmonary ultrasound? And you could say, yeah, that looks suspicious. Or no, I think that looks okay. Let's wait. And that means a, a reduction in utilization of really scarce resources in the hospital and further exposure of other patients. I think it's, it's changing our way of thinking in a lot of ways. And I think it's now coming to what you and I would know in the military of technologies we've used that are really helpful for a good reason. Correct. And, you know, the United States gross domestic pro uh, product, especially for medicine, medical care is about 17%. And it's only getting higher with COVID-19. But I think how, how other countries have been doing the practice of medicine, I think primary care and pushing primary care, primary medical care, is, should be on the forefront. Don't get me wrong. We should still have, you know, sh surgery. We should still have these important fields of medicine. But I think we are not doing, as a country, a good job in primary care. I think patients should use their physician's offices or now telemedicine to get care so we're not increasing nosocomial or respiratory infections. We're not bombarding the emergency room or the hospitals with primary care uh, issues. It's funny, I was looking up, uh, I think Medscape had a good uh, email or article saying that emergency uh, visits, emergency room visits dropped tremendously with COVID-19. And I think just due to the reduction in using ERs or urgent care centers as primary care settings has helped. Well, I'm going to use a term that I might have to explain to you because your, your generation of physicians will be totally unfamiliar with it, house calls. Mm -hmm. I was raised in an age where we still did house calls. I've done many house calls in my early career as a physician because it was convenient for the patient. It was I was able to do it on the more sick patients I had on my way home from work. I could see maybe one or two in the afternoon on my way home from work. And it was very, very useful as a tool, uh, not for every patient, but certainly for patients that I'm really concerned about getting another set of eyes on without making them come out of their house, especially with COVID-19, if I have adequate PPE to go into their home so I don't take it back out with me if I'm worried about a COVID-19 patient. But that really helps the overall system in that I don't send them to an ER or to an to a uh, a, 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 a clinical operation associated with a hospital where then we could generate even more infectious contagion within the hospital. And I, I think we're seeing that there's a reason why doctors have done house calls. There's a reason why people quarantine over history. And I, I really hope that people are learning from this and realizing that just because it was done a, a hundred years ago doesn't mean it's not still valid today. Correct. Hey, John, I want to end this segment with two wonkish questions. One is, what's the deal with high-flow oxygen versus invasive ventilation? I mean, can you briefly describe that? And then the, the last question is going to be um, uh, this coagulopathy thing, if you want to just comment on that. And then we'll, we'll finish up the second episode, and we'll, we'll leave the rest to the third episode, okay? Sounds good. So high-flow oxygen. So when I was a resident, again, that was only eight years ago, we didn't have really high-flow high nasal cannula was coming out. And high-flow nasal cannula or high-flow oxygen therapy 
is a non-invasive delivery system for oxygen. We know nasal cannula delivers, you know, one to two to three to four liters, depending on, you know, let's say for adults. Some adults can get up to 25 liters with hyponasal cannula. Why is that so, better than a ventilator then? I mean, why wouldn't you just put a tube in them? So there's always complications of putting a tube So uh, in the tracheal uh, tube. And the reason is the patient or hypo-nasal cannula, the patient is breathing on their own. The patient is having using their own muscle. Now, we are not using a machine to breathe for the patient. So when you put in a breathing tube, you're essentially requiring a respirator or a ventilator or a machine providing the breath. Now, because you have placed them on a ventilator, placed them on a machine, patients will fight. So now you have to sedate them. Sometimes you have to paralyze them. And anyone who knows when, you know, they're sleeping, they are unable to effectively use their muscles. So essentially, if they're on a breathing tube or being intubated on a mechanical ventilator for days, you're talking about significant muscular decondition. So when you, you know, really when you're intubated, that is respiratory failure. So that's one organ system that has failed. When they're on high flow nasal cannula, it kind of, you know, the terminology will still say respiratory failure, but they are much better off being on a high flow nasal cannula than on invasive ventilation. They can you still can eat too, right? Food. Correct. Which means you don't, have to, you don't have to take over their GI tract. You, they can manage their own. They can, in many cases, they can continue to eat and do other things that keep the workload less on medical people. You know, some people will disagree, but hypo-nasal cannula is non-invasive and mechanical ventilation is invasive. Some pediatric pulmonologists will say, well, I feel that hypo-nasal cannula is invasive because the kids don't like it. Correct. But kids don't like having a breathing tube and neither do the parents. So, you know, when push comes to shove, I'd rather have them on hypo-nasal cannula than intubated, sedated, and paralyzed. How does that work with CPAP, John? So CPAP, so hypo-nasal cannula and CPAP to me are exactly the same. Oh, okay, keep going. CPAP, CPAP is continuous positive airway pressure. You're pretty much having an industrial air blower. Everyone says, oh, five centimeters of water. But you can go up higher. 10 centimeters of water. High flow nasal cannula is, again, a professional air blower, but you have oxygen blended in. So does it so provide fact, positive airway pressure, high flow nasal cannulas? Correct. So high flow oh. nasal cannulas, you have two systems. You have flow and you have oxygen. Oxygen, you know, going from 21 to 100%, and you have flow, that's where the high flow comes in. You can go from depending for preemies, high flow could be three, four liters, or adults, 25, 30 liters. Well, why so, wouldn't we just use a, a CPAP system and just pipe oxygen into it? What's the, why would you have the two different ones? Do you have a, a thought? What's the thoughts on that? So the thought is, so like in our obstructive sleep apnea patient, mm -hmm. the rate-limiting step is the masks. 
Uh, Imagine, you know, I've always had residents come in and get checked out for masks. You know, if a resident or medical student have not worn a full face mask, when you get, let's say, you know, many of us, especially when we're doing these swabbing missions, uh, use PAPR, uh, the positive air uh, pressure regulated system, Mm -hmm. where you have a mask over your face. And you're getting uh, you're getting air. Imagine wearing that mask twenty four seven. Yeah. Everyone will you know people are complaining of the N ninety five mask or the surgical mask. They're complaining about it. Look, get it. Wear a CPAP. You have a full face mask. You may have just an oral mask interface, a nasal interface, mm-hmm. high flow nasal cannula. That's just what it is. It's a nasal cannula in the nares. So you're free to have your mouth moving. You don't have this bulky or burdensome mask over your face. I noticed the Italians used almost these bubble helmets um, that were CPAP, but it was a full, mm-hmm. like, like fishbowl on top of their patients' heads. Did you see anything? Have you, have you seen those before? So we talk about... Uh, Entire, the you know, there's a proper name, uh, uh, full, not the full face mask, but it's almost like a scuba diver's mask or even a uh, fireman's mask where you're pretty much covering the whole face or sometimes they have it on top of their head just providing oxygen, providing this CPAP. And in some settings, we do use it, especially in patients with, let's say, craniofacial or massive trauma. Oh, yeah. That you know, we use it. You know, one burdensome thing or cumbersome thing is it dries out the eyes. Yeah. No, well, you know, but that's why we're using humidified or heated humidification because heated humidification really helps. And do, do you use humidity with the high flow nasal cannulas as well? Oh, absolutely. You cannot use uh, humid- you cannot use it without humidification or almost a heated system because it can dry out your nares and you can actually induce bleeding. And, and John, I know this is really wonkish, but maybe people who are listening will understand this a little better by listening. Can you also do that at home? Or, can, or, or are there just not oxygen generators powerful enough to deliver 25 liters continuously at home for people? Correct. You probably need a 50 PSI machine. You so, could, so you could get one, maybe, and use it at home? Can, they're trying to get it done. I've seen it. I think, you know, we just had a uh, forum where they're talking about using high-flow nasal cannula at home. The devices are there. The devices are present where they can provide, uh, provide it as well. So... Uh, the technologies out there. John, uh, listen, um, I'm going to thank you right now, John, thank you for, for joining us on this second segment of rotations. Uh, I'm going to ask you if you don't mind, if we continue this in the third segment, is that okay? Sounds great. Okay. And so for everybody listening, um, I hope you got something out of this. We're trying to kind of put a, a point on the map of time on 8th of June, Actually, this is going 8th and 9th of June now. 8th of June, 
2020 about where we're at in COVID-19, what we understand, what we don't. And on the next episode, we're going to talk about uh, some of the things you hear on social media, whether or not they're real or not, and uh, we'll try to address those. So with that, I bid you adieu. I thank you so much for your attention. Please, if you like this uh, information, share it widely, post it to Facebook, send it to Twitter, let people know what's real and what's not so we can sort this out and they don't just hear noise on social media. And uh, okay, that's all I got. Thanks. Take care. Yeah, he built a life on amazing grace I was born to break every single rule With a reckless heart, sometimes a fool I was held to raise, but he kept his cool Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the Bee and Medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion, so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content or the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian, Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi, and at Rotations Pcast, or by visiting MediaMedicine.com slash Rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, from me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non hater. built in his name No magazines that would spread his fame But when a good man lives, he leaves awake And in a thousand years, it will still remain I can't see it all when he's weathered eyes Full of strength and love and sacrifice Well, I've spent my days all the run, but now I know it I'm my father's son. Yeah, I know it I'm my father's son. No matter where I may have run, I'm proud to be my father's son.